This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Children who don't know their biological fathers grow up under a cloud of uncertainty. No wonder so many of them seek to learn their true family ties. Well, as it happens, for those who owe their birth to a sperm donor, the Internet and a new sense of openness are helping them to solve the mystery. Mark Strasman will report our cover story. This is probably the most unusual family reunion you'll ever see. Many of these brothers and sisters have never actually met each other before. Some of them have never met their father, sperm donor number 2053. How many potential kids are out there from a single donor? Uh, we know of a group that's somewhere around 200. 200 kids? Right. The new way we're defining family, ahead on Sunday morning. <laughs> we have questions this morning for Norman Lear, the veteran TV producer who appears to have no thoughts of retiring. He's talking with our Mo Rocca. Dynamite! Norman Lear. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. 
The man behind some of TV's most groundbreaking sitcoms is 93 years old. Good morning, good morning. And still at it. I am clearly older than a lot of people. But am I old? Not yet. Norman Lear still stretching himself at 93. Later on Sunday morning. This feels good. Introducing Rhiannon Giddens. She is a singer from North Carolina whose fame is spreading far and wide. Martha Teichner will do the honors. While he was scheming, I was beaming, and his beamer just beaming. Rhiannon Giddens was already a Grammy winner. But then, legendary record producer T-Bone Burnett offered to put out her first solo album. Well, I love my love and well he knows. What exactly has T-Bone Burnett done in nudging you to the next level? Yeah, nudging is right, uh, pushing. <laughs> Ahead this Sunday morning, the rise of Rhiannon Giddens. Up, up, and away could easily be the motto of the folks who fly the Goodyear blimps. Now, after many years of service, they're being replaced by a new class of airship. Lee Cowan will be taking us aboard. The Goodyear blimp has been described as a slice of floating apple pie. It is pure Americana. There's nothing like the Goodyear blimp. But Goodyear is making a change in the skies, phasing out the blimps in favor something else. Are you going to be sad to see this go, though? Of course. Of course it's sad, yeah. How Goodyear plans to continue the tradition late on Sunday morning. Rita Braver shows us letters from the hand of Ernest Hemingway. Steve Hartman watches a teenage weightlifting star on the rise. Next, fatherhood many times over. They would run a big ad, say, you know, sort of young men 18 to 30 needed for uh, sperm donation. And later, up, up, and away. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The term family ties is more than a bit ambiguous for children conceived with the help of a sperm donor. And finally being able to give meaning to the phrase can be a life-changing experience for all concerned. Our cover story is reported by Mark Strassman. What are your thoughts going into this? Nervous? Uh, definitely a little bit nervous, yeah. So, Todd Whitehurst is walking into the unknown. Like, like, what if they turned out to be, you know, really strange and shy and they don't look up and they're like very antisocial or something? Four kids are waiting for him a half mile away. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. One of them is 20-year-old Sarah Malley. What makes you nervous? What do you say when you're meeting your biological family for the first time? I don't know. Todd Whitehurst is their biological father, the one they're about to meet. He's a 49-year-old computer engineer who works for Google. In 1998, then a Stanford grad student, he noticed something in the school paper. They would run a big ad, say, you know, sort of young men 18 to 30 needed for uh, sperm donation. Did you have any qualms about it? Well, you know, I guess my feeling on it was the folks who end up going to a sperm bank really want children quite badly. And why wouldn't you want that? And why wouldn't you want to help those people out? 
Whitehurst, who has two children of his own from a previous marriage, never expected to meet any of his donor children. Sperm banks follow a protocol. All donor dads sign an agreement to remain anonymous. The families on the receiving end are only given basic background information about their donor, his age, ethnicity, height, birthplace, education, and so on. Clinics also give each donor dad a unique donor ID number, and that has become the gateway to improbable meetings like the one Whitehurst is about to have. Uh, it's a bit nerve-wracking. And it never would have happened if not for one woman. It's an innate human desire to want to know where we come from. Wendy Kramer is the mother of a donor son. She saw how curious he was to learn more about his donor father and founded an online database called the Donor Sibling Registry. It's a networking site for children who want to connect by matching their donor father's ID number. 47,000 people have registered, including 2,300 donor dads. Kids want to know, I want to hear my donors laugh. I want to see him smile. I want to know what he thinks is funny. I want to, you know, I want to look into his face. I want to shake his hand. Carrie Phelps felt that way. I have always known that I was a donor child from the earliest age, two. You can imagine a parent with a two-year-old and the kids asking, where's daddy? Phelps, the daughter of a single mother, was 14 when she found her donor father. Phelps had little information about him, but spent two weeks plugging what she did know into an online search. She found seven possible matches. One photo stood out. But that moment when I saw his face for the first time, it's just it's incredible. Her donor dad was Todd Whitehurst. She emailed him, they met, became closer, and eventually even took vacations together with some of his other donor children, like oh, this okay. trip to Cape Cod last I'm, July. Uh, I feel that it's just the right thing to do. If, if uh, the children want to meet, then it's important, I think, to be available to meet. Okay. Get ready to watch an extraordinary family moment. Hey. Hello. You must be Keegan. No. Yeah. <laughs> Eight donor children came together, four of whom Whitehurst had never met before, who were also meeting their siblings for the first time. Yeah, it gets complicated. What is this moment like for each of you? Uh, it's pretty awesome. This is insane. <laughs> Sarah Malley, a student at Boston's Emerson College, had learned six months earlier that she and her twin sister Jenna were donor babies. She contacted Whitehurst through the donor sibling registry, and he helped arrange this family gathering. Yeah, she has a, that's nice, interesting this is color natural. hair. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like when you first walked up? Uh, overwhelming. I was worried it would just be like a, hello, it's nice to meet you, handshake. The, like we hugged and that was like a whole big thing. You just even sitting here, do, do you feel father's pride? Oh yeah, absolutely. And when I hear her talking about a hug, I want to give her a hug again, so. <laughs> yeah, she's wonderful. The reproductive industry does little to make it easy for donor dads and their children to meet. Nobody keeps track of the donors. Nobody keeps track of the kids. There's no tracking whatsoever. Wendy Kramer says sperm banks ask mothers to report donor births, but it is not required. And no organization links different clinics to track the total number of births from a single donor ID. And how many potential kids are out there from a single donor? 
Nobody really knows. The largest group that we have on our website, uh, we know of a group that's somewhere around 200. 200 kids? Right. I don't know about you, but if I knew that I was... I had 200 half-brothers and sisters. I would feel like I was part of a herd. It would feel odd. Whitehurst donated to the same clinic for four years. How many times would you guess? Uh, yeah, probably on the order of uh, 400 times, something like that. 400 times? Yeah. And consider this. A single donation at a sperm bank can produce as many as 24 sellable vials. Whitehurst's 400 donations could have produced 9,600 vials for his clinic to sell. How many donor children do you know that you have? I have uh, 22. 22 kids? That I know of. You could have a family touch football game and have enough players from <laughs> both sides. Maybe compete with other families too. Does that seem a little crazy? It does seem crazy. But on this Cape Cod long weekend, there was no sign anyone felt like part of a herd. Just a clear curiosity from eight half-siblings about each other and about their donor father. Going forward, you feel a responsibility for their lives. Yeah, I do. It's, um, it's not, it's sort of uh, the responsibility I feel as an uncle. I realize I'm not their parents, right? Their parents are primarily responsible for them. But if their parents are unable to help them, then, uh, then I would step in and, and do what I could. Oh, we have the same color ball. Do you feel love? You want to protect them? You want them to, be, to, to have a happy life? But yeah, they've all uh, turned out to be really quite remarkable children. Carrie Phelps now studies computer science at Stanford, just like her donor dad. I never felt like there was something missing because I've been so lucky. I'm so wanted. And that's something that I think a lot of kids can't say for certain. And so being able to meet all of these totally different, but at the same time very related siblings, it's such an incredible honor for me to grow up this way. Let's walk up to the preacher. Coming up, the music goes round and round. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Press button 41, and if you watch very closely, you may see the King Brothers. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. January 10th, 1949, 67 years ago today, the day RCA Victor unveiled a new breed of phonograph record, the 45. Just seven inches across with one and a half inch hole in the middle, the new record played at 45 revolutions per minute with greater fidelity and clarity than the old 78 RPM record. Listen, compare, and you too will agree that RCA Victor's 45 RPM record is the finest and best ever made. Not everyone agreed including the folks at arch-rival Columbia Records, which was promoting a new record of its own, played at 33 and a third RPM. Said Columbia's chairman, we are unable to fathom the purpose of the records revolving at 45 RPM. Though Columbia couldn't fathom it, a generation or two of American young people certainly did. 
With its small size and modest price, the 45 became the standard for top 40 hit songs. Not to mention a mainstay for the malt shop jukebox. From the 50s through the 60s, from Elvis to the Beatles and beyond, millions of American teens first played their favorite songs on a 45. Eventually, however, technology turned against the pint-sized record. The first truly sensible approach to tape. Cassette tapes, CDs, and online streaming services all eclipsed the 45, and it's 33 and a third Big Brother as well, relegating vinyl records of all types to that most dreaded of categories, music your parents or even your grandparents listen to. But old-style record lovers take heart. There's a bit of a vinyl revival currently underway, with sales of 33 and a third LPs up 52% between 2013 and 2014. Proof positive that what goes around comes around. Next, a man of words and letters. Ernest Hemingway was a man of letters in more ways than one, as our Rita Braver now explains. This is Ernest Hemingway. The fifth column was written in the fall and early winter of 1937. In this rare recording, Ernest Hemingway is describing his work on a play about the Spanish Civil War, even as it raged around him in Madrid. And while I was writing the play, Hotel Florida, where we lived and worked, was struck by more than 30 high-explosive shells. So if it is not a good play, perhaps that is what is the matter with it. But in 1938, the New York Times said it was a good play, one of many works where Hemingway explored the agony of war. He experienced war on many different fronts, and he hated it passionately. Sean Hemingway is Ernest's grandson. Though born after his grandfather's death, Sean is steeped in family history. I bumped into Ernest Hemingway, the American novelist, who is out here after material for his next book. And says he understands why Hemingway is considered one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, with a series of landmark works that earned him the Nobel Prize for Literature. He illuminated the human condition. That's absolutely true. I think he's able to capture those emotions and in a very direct way um, that, that you read it and you feel it. And now there is renewed interest in Ernest Hemingway. In the wake of the recent attacks on Paris, a movable feast, his love letter to the City of Light, sold out on Amazon. Hemingway first traveled to Paris in the 1920s, part of the lost generation of expatriate writers and artists. He introduced himself to Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound. Uh, he met James Joyce. It was Stein that introduced him to artists like Picasso and Miro. Declan Kiley is curator of a new Hemingway exhibit that's been packing them in at Manhattan's Morgan Library. He says it was the 1926 novel the Sun Also Rises, that put Ernest Hemingway on the map. This is a telegram from? This is Dorothy Parker writing from New York to Hemingway in Paris. She says, 
baby, your book is knocking them cold here. Isn't it swell? <laughs> Love, Dottie. Made into a film starring Ava Gardner and Tyrone Power. It's set in Paris and Pamplona, Spain. The story of a World War I veteran with a devastating war injury. What I'm about to tell you is the most shocking thing a man has ever heard. You are going to be impotent. One person who appeared not to fall in love with The Sun Also Rises was Ernest Hemingway's own mother. Yeah, I think it could be said that she actively reviled the book. She told him that every page fills me with a sick loathing. Undeterred, Hemingway developed a reputation for living it up to write it down. A lover of fine liquor, beautiful women, he was married four times, and great adventure. Is it true that you're 98 years old? Can you believe that? No, How did I can't that believe I, I can't believe it. Hemingway biographer A.E. Hotchner shared many of those adventures. She really became a father figure to me. The two men met in 1948. At that point, the things that he had been interested in, shooting big game, bullfighting, they were all very manly sports. But that wasn't Ernest. I mean, Ernest was not a braggadocio, bullfighting guy. Neither was Hotchner. Which one are you? Where are I'm you? this guy in the middle. But Hemingway somehow convinced him to get into a bullring in Spain, yes, with real bulls. And this is the suit. And that's the suit. Even buying him this matador suit. He said, just remember, don't lean on anything that makes the suit look bad. Why did you go along with it? I could no more back out of that than fly. I mean... You couldn't say no to Ernest Hemingway? No. Ernest was made for yes. <laughs> Luckily, there were no mishaps, and Hemingway never let his fun interfere with his work. I work on a new book always. The constant rewriting, the constant searching for a better phrase, a better word. Absolutely. Hemingway was completely ruthless with himself, would throw away what other writers would probably have held on to and tried to use. In later years, Hemingway spent much of his time in Key West and Havana, often aboard his boat. His novel of a fisherman's epic struggle, The Old Man in the Sea, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1953. The Nobel came a year later, but... And this is when the plunge into madness is beginning. Yeah. And you can see it. In his latest book, Hotchner describes Hemingway's increasing depression and paranoia leading up to his death from a self-inflicted gunshot wound at age 61. It was front-page news, the story of a man whose life and work still have the power to move us. Through it all was this incredible man, a truly a genius of his kind, who had an attitude toward living and life that was like no other that I had ever met before then or after. He was an original. Ahead. Flying high. I can't believe you could just stick your arm out. Like that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's like it's like being in a convertible. <laughs> the 
But first... I love my love and he loves me. Taking note. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Black is the color of my true love's hair. Introducing Rhiannon Giddens, an up-and-coming singer with a voice and style all her own. Martha Teisner has her story. What a boy. Where are you hiding? How often can you witness a moment that changes a career? For Rhiannon Giddens, this was it. Her performance during the Another Day, Another Time concert in New York City on September 29, 2013, seen in this Showtime documentary. was like a musical explosion on stage. What happened next was like an explosion in her life. Did you understand the impact of that performance? No, no, I had no idea. And I really didn't know until like the reviews started coming out. And I was just like, uh, okay. And then, you know, the conversation with T-Bone happened. T-Bone Burnett, the legendary record producer, asked Giddens whether he could produce her first solo album. I've been doing this 50 years now. It's no mystery anymore who's good and who's doing it, you see. It's too late to regret What is gone The album has been nominated for a Grammy. He said, what's your dream record? And I had this list of songs. And I said, well, what do you think about this? And he said, great. Black is the color of my true love's hair. This was on a scale of nothing that I had experienced. I don't know if I really realized what I was getting into. It was a long process of trying to figure out how to make this work without feeling like I was abandoning the chocolate drops. In 2005, Giddens, along with Dom Flemons and Justin Robinson, started the critically acclaimed Grammy-winning Carolina Chocolate Drops. to lay claim to the African-American piece of the history of traditional American music. We all had a really strong mission to uncover this music and to, to show it to the world. For Giddens, it's been personal. My dad's white and my mom's black, and I've struggled with being mixed race. I kind of have found my identity through the music. 
through the roots music of North Carolina and realized that that's my identity as, North, as a North Carolinian. But opera, not the roots music of her native North Carolina, was why she left Greensboro to study at Oberlin College in Ohio. Yes, opera. Why didn't you end up an opera singer? As much as I loved doing it, I, there was so much other stuff, other music that I was getting interested in. I'm so grateful for the training. Is everybody here? Right now, though, she's trying to recognize the Rhiannon Giddens, who is emerging. Cool! The down-home country girl has grown up and gone glam. Carolina Chocolate Drops are along for the ride, but Giddens is the only original member left, and there's no doubt it's her show. Right tag? Oh, look, look, look. Touring is nothing new for Giddens. Between concerts, she grabs moments with her family here on the campus of the University of California, Santa Barbara, during a series of shows on the West Coast. She is handsome, she is pretty, she is the belle of Belfast Her husband, Michael Laffin, and their son, Quivine, and daughter, Aoife, travel with her as much as possible. The rest of the time, they live in Ireland, where Laffin was born so that the kids will learn Irish. <laughs> On the road, home is a chartered bus. Something new, a step up after years of the family and the band driving themselves from concert to concert in rented minivans. So this is uh, your version of the rock star bus. The rock star bus, <laughs> yes. 12 people on a rock star bus. Maybe 13? 13, yeah. 13. yeah. Whoop. Laffin put his own musical career on hold to make their fractured lifestyle work. I'm yeah. the primary caregiver, I would say. So I, I breakfast, I make sure that I have their, their meals, I make sure that they've got stuff to do during the day. They agreed her career was the priority. You don't want to slow down now when if you ride the wave, you might get up further faster. Last spring, she was at the White House, belting out a gospel number. You can't see it in this PBS broadcast, but Rhiannon Giddens was barefoot. You perform at bare feet? Mm -hmm. For me, the bare feet are grounding. I'm connected to the earth in a way that I cannot be any other way. as far as she's come. And no matter how far she goes, she is never far from North Carolina.
died in a blimp is next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's a terrific race, ladies and gentlemen. It's smoke and it's flames now. And the flame is rising to the ground. Not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the fans are just speeding around it. The Hindenburg disaster of 1937 claimed 36 lives and put an end to the dream of passenger travel aboard Zeppelins lifted by hydrogen. It's flammable. By contrast, the Goodyear blimps, filled with non-flammable helium, have been safely soaring up, up, and away for decades. Lee Cowan takes us aloft in the latest full-sized model. Enjoy your flight. Okay, thank you. It took 93 years of waiting, but Alice Gracious finally Check this off her bucket list. She climbed into her seat, slung beneath more than 200,000 cubic feet of helium, and a few moments later, Alice was headed into the wild blue yonder in the Goodyear blimp. It's a rare seat indeed aboard a floating icon. Our friend Charles Corralt had the same pleasure nearly 40 years ago. He described the experience as only he could. Hopping around in a blimp works a lovely psychological change on a man. Since you know you're not going anywhere fast, you become content to go slow. Cars pass you by. Even seagulls pass you by. None of it seems to matter. Things haven't changed much since that ride of Kuralt's. In fact, the Goodyear blimps themselves aren't all that different from when they first took to the skies back in 1925. It looks pretty vintage. It is vintage. It's actually made out of real wood. Yeah, you don't find that in aviation anymore. Taylor Laverty is our pilot, one of only three women worldwide known to fly an airship. I can't believe you could just stick your arm out. Like, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it's like, it's like being in a convertible. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty old school flying. Cruising speed is only a lumbering 35 miles an hour. All Taylor has to steer it are cables and pulleys and a lot of brute strength. You have to put a lot of pressure on it, though? There's a lot of pressure for, for when you want to make a, an actual turn. Yeah, if you want to pick it up. you got to put all your weight on it all, like that. Yeah. It's a good workout. <laughs> yeah. It's all thrillingly quaint. But to some at Goodyear, the blimps were starting to become a little too quaint. The time had regretfully come, the company figured, to phase these faithful servants of the air out of service. You grow attached to it. You know you've done a lot of big events and it's taking you across the country and to one day everyone say okay we have to pull the plug it's just it's it's heartbreaking. Matt St. John flew the last flight of the Spirit of America this past summer before she was retired with dignity. It was a tough that was a tough week for us. Tougher still for Goodyear's CEO Richard Kramer who had a big decision to make. I mean, what do you think would have happened if you had decided that it was time to end the blimp program. That's something I don't want to find out. It never was going to happen. I think there would have been a revolt to not see the blimp in the skies anymore. So instead, he decided to invest millions of Goodyear's marketing money into replacing the old blimps with these, the NT model. It's a new generation of airship, 50 feet longer, about 40 miles an hour faster, capable of cruising at freeway speed. 
engines can swivel in place, making it far more maneuverable than its older cousins. Inside, a skeleton made of carbon fiber. Technically, that makes these new Goodyear blimps not really blimps at all, but semi-rigid airships. About the only thing that's the same is the helium lifts the thing. That's everything else. Everything else is different. What now for ground? Pilot Mike Doherty welcomed us aboard. The updated gondola has room for nearly double the number of passengers, complete with a bay window offering astonishing views. And that seat back there, that is amazing. Yeah, we call that the picture window and that because everybody sits back there and, and take pictures. It's, it is a beautiful view. There's nothing else like it in aviation. It's really unique. Gone are the old manual flight controls, replaced with joysticks that operate the airship electronically. Is it easy to fly? Uh, it's, it's, uh, different. It's different to fly. Yeah, it's, it's not, uh, it's not physically challenging. And once you get the concepts down, then, yeah, it's, it's not so bad to fly. Goodyear is building three of these new NT models at this massive hangar in Akron, Ohio. Each is being assembled piece by piece from parts sent over from a Zeppelin company in Germany. Although we know Goodyear mainly for its tires, the company has actually been in the blimp business most of its corporate life. So what is all of this? <laughs> now this is our Raiders of the Lost Ark room. Now, this is, uh... Eddie Ogden is Goodyear's airship historian. In here are the remnants of a company so trusted in early aeronautics, it was put under contract to build airships for the U.S. Navy. Amelia Earhart even christened one of them. Its most famous were the USS Akron and the USS Macon that were as big as ocean liners. They could look over the horizon. There was no, no radar looking over the horizon. There was no satellites. They were also pretty valuable for spotting submarines. Passengers, too, soon found airships a luxurious way to cross the Atlantic. It was hailed as the future of air travel. The Hindenburg disaster at Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1937 brought an end to it all. It's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the famous crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the passengers speeding around it. Eventually, even the military had little use for airships. But Goodyear found a new purpose for its floating billboards as camera platforms. Good Lord, these cameras are huge. <laughs> they were heavy, too. You had basically a studio camera in the blimp. The first blimp cast was the Rose Parade back in 1955. From then on, Goodyear's aerial TV coverage redefined the way we saw major events, says Goodyear's Scott Bauman. Back then, this was really revolutionary, right? It was incredibly revolutionary, and the technology at the time was being developed as we needed it. You were kind of making it up as you went. We were discovering it as we went, absolutely. Today, Goodyear airships remain the most recognizable eye in the sky above major sporting events, especially college football. Zoom on a little bit. We were up for six hours, hovering above the Miami-Clemson game back in October. A Goodyear blimp will be watching over Clemson again tomorrow night as they take on Alabama for the College Football National Championship. For Chief Pilot Jerry Hissom, it's as good as it gets. Does it ever get a little tedious just going around no, the stadium? No, over? No, no, really? No. No. I could go fly for another eight hours. Today. Could you really? Yeah. It's fun. There's just one of the old models left, the spirit of innovation. 
based near Los Angeles, the one that brought Alice Gracious back to Earth. Her ride wasn't just a bucket list moment, it was also her birthday present. Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, was it everything you thought it was gonna be? It was. What a birthday. <laughs> what a birthday and what a machine. Old or new, Goodyear's floating ambassadors have both secured and preserved the low and slow style of flying, an intimate, friendly way to get your head up in the clouds. Next, 15 years, 385 pounds. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Heavy lifting looks easy when it's done by the young man our Steve Hartman has been watching in action. At the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, American weightlifters carry a heavy burden. The U.S. men's team hasn't won a gold medal in 56 years. But coach Zygmunt Smallsayers says that streak may be ending thanks to one incredible lifter. His muscles, they are so fantastic. This is what he got from the God. So where is this Hercules? You won't believe. Here at Beaufort High School in Beaufort, South Carolina, 15-year-old C.J. Cummings looks like just another kid. In fact, Everyone thought he was just another kid until three years ago when he walked into his first national men's tournament. They thought I was just like a spectator. They thought you were a spectator? I think so. How well did you do? I got second. You got second? Yes. At the age of 12. Since then, he has been dubbed the LeBron James of U.S. weightlifting, but even that may be selling him short. Last August, this 5'4", 150-pound kid attempted the unimaginable. This is 385 pounds? Yes. Picture a kitchen stove on each end of that bar. Okay, that's good. <laughs> no American in his weight class had ever done that much in the clean and jerk. That's astounding. At least, not until CJ came along. An American men's record set by a boy. After this lift, his personal coach, Ray Jones, says a lot of people didn't believe the reports. And I can understand that because if I wasn't there, I don't know that you I would believe yourself. I'm telling you. To that end, a local professor of sports medicine set up a bunch of cameras and sensors to try to figure out exactly how CJ's doing this. But he found nothing special in his technique, proving that CJ was either sent here directly from the planet Krypton or he's just plain strong. And get this. Coaches say he's still at least 10 years away from reaching his full potential, probably another four till his first Olympics. Until then, he'll be busy inspiring young weightlifters across the country. That's what I'm talking about. And exercising a great deal of patience. I just want to take it as far as I can go, hopefully get a gold medal for the U.S. Have you thought about a Wheaties box? Hmm? Have you thought about a Wheaties box? <laughs> what is that? What's a Wheaties box? Yeah. I told you he was young. Yeah. <laughs> Guess Who Died by Norman Lear. Act one. Next, Fade Norman Lear. He's at it again. Of a desert community. And later, what's next? 
here and thanks for your trouble. 50 cents. Some thanks. Wait a minute. You don't like it? Let me see it. I like it. I'll tell you what, since you don't like it and I do, why don't I just keep it? It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. The 1970s hit Maud is just one of the breakthrough TV shows Norman Lear produced over the years. And he's still at it, as Mo Rocca has discovered. Do you prefer senior citizens, the elderly, or old people? I prefer older. 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 Elderly has a connotation. I am clearly older than a lot of people. But am I old? Not yet. All right, good morning, good morning. Which is why last November, How are you, Norman? <clears throat> during the Austin Film Festival, I've never heard this read. The king of television, 93-year-old Norman Lear, was at it again. Guess who died by Norman Lear? He brought together a group of actors for a reading of his newest television comedy. Guess who died? Who? The senator who had the affair with the taxi driver. Guess Who Died, set in a senior living community, is a comedy about his contemporaries. Morning, Patricia. How you doing? Terrific. Can't sleep without Xanax. Can't get out of bed without Celebrex. Can't eat without Prilosec. Other than that, I'm terrific. But I've been thinking for some time as I was aging, uh, where are people my age, I thought. Lear says he noticed that older characters were relegated to marginal roles on TV. There were no shows about us, about our lives, about our attitudes, about our problems. You'd think that Norman Lear would have no problem getting his script produced. After all, this is the man who gave us landmark comedies, like Maude. Dynamite! Good times. Give me one good reason why you married me. You was pregnant. <laughs> and all in the family. Two, three. <laughs> but since writing his script for Guess Who Died five years ago, a total of zero network executives has shown interest. Television executives think that young people only want to watch other young people. Well, they're the same television executives that didn't think Archie should say this or that. If God had intended white people to dance with colored people, he'd have given us rhythm too. <laughs> and you can't deal with menopause and you can't deal with abortion. Just tell me, Walter, that I'm doing the right thing, not having the baby. And you can't deal with economic problems, you know. I didn't have no million people out there marching and protesting to get me my job. No, his uncle got it for him. So they're not always right. Finding the funny in the serious began early for Lear, when he was growing up working class in Connecticut. You're nine years old and you find out that your father is going to prison. What is that like? It's terrible. <laughs> uh... It's terrible. I adored him. His father, convicted of selling fake bonds, was sent away to prison for three years. Lear still remembers a neighbor's words of wisdom. Puts his hand on my shoulder and says, uh, well, you're the man in the house now, Norman. And uh, there, there, a man doesn't cry. Nine years old, I'm hearing that. I thought, well, 
teaches me a lot about the foolishness of the human condition. Ultimately, it taught me this, there's humor everywhere, in every situation. Lear's worldview was also shaped by trips to New York City, looking out the train window into the apartments of Harlem. The tenements were like, they felt like they were eight feet away, they were probably 30 feet, they were very close. And the windows leading um, into the apartments were very visible, and life inside those windows. And they were largely uh, African-American. And I used to wonder about them. You know? Who were these families? Who were these families? What were they thinking? What were their problems? I also had something in common with them. I knew by then that as a uh, Jewish kid, there were people who hated me simply for that reason. And I understood by, certainly by then, that black people had it worse than I had it. A few years later, Lear would look out different windows and see African Americans. This time, high in the skies over Europe. How you doing, buddy? I hug. Hey, good to see you. I, I hug. Yeah. During World War II, Lear was a radio operator and gunner flying more than 50 bombing missions over Germany and Italy. His escort during some of these dangerous flights, the famed all-black Tuskegee Airmen. So, so it's 70 years later. Yeah. A few months ago, Lear met one of them, Professor Roscoe Brown, face-to-face -face for the first time. I shot down a jet over Berlin on a mission that you were on, yes, March that's 24th, the... 1945. How amazing is it that the two of us flew the same mission over Berlin, no less? Uh, over Berlin, the same day. Roscoe Brown of the Tuskegee Airmen. Both men were honored at Veterans Day ceremonies in New York City and honored to be with each other. What would you see on those missions when... Well, we flew about 100 feet over the bombers. Sometimes we dropped down right close to them. And our job was to protect them from the enemy fighters. I'm probably standing here with him because he was there. Because Where does the tension sort of build up for you? Head to toe. <laughs> Today, Lear is still in fighting shape. And we stretch this way. Most mornings, he's up early, stretching and strengthening himself for the day ahead. I get, I get applause doing this. <laughs> he probably deserves a standing ovation. I must say this does feel good. It feels great. No, Norman Lear is not the retiring type. This is it. He's updating his hit show One Day at a Time for Netflix, this time with a Latino cast. I, I saved your cousin when I married her. From what? The good life? From and he has no intention of pulling the plug on his newest project, Guess Who Died? And I hope one day to see it on the air. So if there's a television executive who can greenlight a show watching us right now, are you available for a meeting? Oh, yes. All he has to do is throw up a window and scream, there are no enough old people on television. I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> Coming up, what's happening here? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. What's next as we begin this new week? 
We've asked three of our reporters to look back and ahead. To begin, senior business analyst Jill Schlesinger. The first week of 2016 was the worst ever start to a year for U.S. stocks, with major indexes down over 6%. The cause of the New Year's sell-off was anxiety over a slowdown in Chinese growth, which sent stocks there plummeting roughly 10% over five days. But while the pace of growth in China, the world's second largest economy, is important, this country is not greatly dependent on exports to China. Yes, there are some companies that rely on the region for sales and earnings, but not enough, even with a rotten first week for stocks, to trigger fears that the U.S. economy is falling over a cliff. So what's a retirement saver to do? The answer is nothing. Remind yourself that you are in this for the long term and that boarding the investor roller coaster means accepting both the ups and the downs. Keep your emotions in check and stick to your game plan. In other words, stay put. It's hard to do, but you've been on this ride before and know that despite a few white knuckle moments from time to time, you should end up just fine. This is Cole Miller. For more than a week now, an armed militia has occupied the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge near Burns, Oregon. The group is led by Eamon Bundy, the son of Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy, who staged a standoff of his own in 2014. They want the federal government to turn over control of its lands in the area to local authorities. Earlier in the week, the county sheriff, David Ward, met with Bundy, asking him to leave peacefully and to respect the wishes of many residents, even offering an escort out of the state. Bundy refused. And some here say the group is sending a message and stand behind them. It's become a big issue for this small town, one as old as the Old West. I'm Vanita Nyer in a New York City subway station. Don't be surprised if later today, here and in at least 14 other American cities, you encounter fellow travelers without their pants. They'll be part of this year's No Pants subway ride. Observed, as it were, in cities around the world. Well, welcome everybody to the 14th annual No Pants subway ride. Promoted as an international celebration of silliness, the ride started in 2002, with just seven bold but cold New Yorkers taking part. In more recent years, organizers say thousands have climbed aboard. So whatever else you might think about the no-pants subway ride, it has thrived and survived for 14 years. That means there's little doubt it's an event with legs. Ahead, the Trump effect. How to explain the remarkable success to date of presidential candidate Donald Trump? Some thoughts from Mark Leibovich, the chief national correspondent of the New York Times Magazine. If you're watching television this morning, chances are Donald Trump will be in your face somewhere. He's been interviewed on some media outlet nearly every day for the last six months, often more than once. He can be blustery. We're taking our country back. We're going to get rid of the stupid people. Compelling. I love you. I love you, folks. And of course, controversial. And we will build a wall, and it's going to be a real wall, believe me. It's going to be a real but Trump's abiding consistency is that he always delivers. If not substance, always eyeballs. He is box office personified. The broadcasters deal with the devil. And everyone says, why do you talk so much about the polls? I say, because I'm winning, you know? 
This isn't to say that Trump has not tapped into a justifiable frustration among American voters. The American dream is dead, but we're going to make it bigger and better and stronger than ever before. But his appeal to the Republican electorate exists separate from the spell he has cast upon the once solemn gatekeepers of the fourth estate. Wow. Think of the media as addicts and Trump as its heroine. Or maybe it's the other way around. Trump is the addict and attention is his heroine. The press is not an honest group of people. You know, well, look at all those cameras back there. It's an unholy codependence either way. And like most codependencies, the arrangement is both comfortable and possibly quite unhealthy. Can you hear now? Yeah, okay. The media have always walked a tightrope between journalism and entertainment. Trump's ascendancy has tripped that balance decisively in favor of the latter. President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. We journalists claim to hate ourselves over this. How dare Trump insult our news organizations and call us losers and talk in circles. Yet Trump is the abusive guest who is always there, always invited, and yes, usually the life of the party. Jeb Bush, to this point, has spent over $40 million for ads. As Trump made his free media rounds last week, he said something that struck me for its subtlety, which is not a quality he's generally known for. He said he felt guilty about having spent so little on campaign advertising while his opponents have parted with tens of millions of dollars to get their messages out. Embedded in Trump's proclamation was a taunt. Suckers, he seemed to be saying to the junkies who will no doubt keep booking him. You think I need to pay for this? Buying ads is for losers. You know, I went to an Ivy League college. I know a lot of words. But somehow loser is so nice. It's just a good word. For the record, I found Trump's backhanded chest thump to be well-earned. It's not his fault that news programmers would line up to film Trump clipping his toenails if he allowed access to the spectacle, which he might. But let's put aside blame and concede that when uttered together, news and entertainment will always represent a kind of conflict of interest. And certainly, the media's Trump dependence has yielded winners. It's been great for Trump, great for ratings, and great for enhancing the public's interest in politics, if not public interest per se. Is it too quaint to wonder if the only loser here might be our democracy? I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.